On the morning of Sunday, November 21st, 1920, a city was stirred from its sleep by the crackle of gunfire. As the church bells struck nine o'clock, squads of IRA men entered homes, hotels and boarding houses across the city. They barged through front doors. They ran upstairs. They kicked in bedroom doors and shot men to death in front of wives, mistresses, children, lodgers and landlords. This was a version of war at its most chilling. Up close, intimate killing, carried out by very young men, many of them barely trained in the weapons they carried. This was the guerrilla war undertaken by the IRA, brought to its most extreme. The war brought to the very homes and bedrooms of the enemy. Out of around 35 targets, 14 alleged spies and agents were killed as an attempt to shake the British intelligence system in Ireland to the core. An intelligence system that simultaneously had pushed the IRA so close to the wall that Michael Collins himself was almost within their reach. But inflicting that desired level of terror on the authorities demanded the IRA ask everything of their young volunteers and much more. On the night before the attacks, those charged with visiting houses the following morning prepared themselves in different ways. Some went to mass or confession, others huddled together in the same beds. Frank Sorin, one of Collins's key intelligence men, drove to 38 Upper Mount Street, where the Dublin goalkeeper Johnny MacDonald would join him the following morning, and stared at the steps leading up to the house. Charles Dalton was 17 years old, bound for a house on Pembroke Street, and stayed up all night. And when the moment came to kill, it wasn't smooth. It wasn't easy. Some attacks were called off or didn't happen. Some of the victims weren't at home. During an operation at the Shelburne Hotel, one volunteer shot his own reflection in the mirror as he climbed the stairs. Of six targets at two houses on Upper Pembroke Street, two people were killed and four others were left with severe gunshot wounds as a result of nervous, quivering hands as the IRA men took aim. One of them, Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Ferguson Montgomery, suffered on for nearly three weeks before he died, becoming the IRA's 15th victim. Joe Dolan and Dan MacDonald led an IRA group to a house on Ranelagh Road to kill Lieutenant William Noble and his mistress. But Noble wasn't there, just his mistress and some children. They barged past them and turned the house upside down, looking for any documents of use. In the panic, with their target missing and orders to kill both together, they wondered what to do with the woman. Dolan pulled a sword scabbard off the wall and beat her. He stole her rings and the room was set on fire. The other volunteers, in response, formed a human chain to the tap in the basement, passing up buckets of water to put out the blaze. A party of IRA men entered 92 Lower Bagot Street to kill Captain William Newbury. His mistress, who was heavily pregnant, forced the door shut when she heard them coming up the stairs. The attackers fired at the door. When they eventually forced the door open, Newbury was hanging out the window, riddled with bullets. His mistress gave birth to a stillborn baby and died herself a few days later. A 10-year-old boy answered the door at 117 Morehampton Road. His father, Thomas Smith, was owner of the house and was killed along with Captain Donald McLean. Lieutenant Henry Anglis was killed in his room on Lower Mount Street. The man sharing his bed rolled off and clung to the floor when the firing started. Down the hall, 
Lieutenant Charles Peel barricaded his door and survived. A truck of auxiliaries pulled up outside and started a shootout with the IRA. Two auxiliaries were killed. As the Mount Street firefight had unfolded, a military messenger on motorcycle blared up the road to Beggar's Bush, where F.P. Crozier, head of the auxiliaries, was inspecting a new division before they decamped to Meath. When the messenger brought him news of the two auxiliaries killed in the shootout nearby, Crozier went down and took some men with him. He found Anglis lying dead on his bed and the man hiding underneath. Frank Teeling, an IRA man, was being held at gunpoint by an auxiliary outside, slowly counting down to his execution. Crozier knocked the gun away. Teeling was injured. Crozier put him in the back of a Crossley tender and sent him to the nearest hospital. Crozier then headed for Dublin Castle. A few hours later, around the same time Crozier's auxiliaries were being organised to head for Croke Park, Luke O'Toole was in conversation with Sean Russell, Tom Kilcoyne and Harry Colley about the IRA's information that a military force was heading to Croke Park. For all the doomsday scenarios outlined by the IRA, it didn't seem to O'Toole like such a grave and terrifying day could get any worse. As the most powerful man in the GAA, weighing up the scales was what O'Toole did all day, every day. The GAA then, like now, was a broad church of opinions and backgrounds, interest groups and counties of different sizes and sporting persuasions, all attempting to pull the GAA in their direction. When it came to finding consensus, O'Toole was always balanced on a tightrope. For 36 years since the GAA's formation in 1884, different forces had battled in the committee rooms and the GAA's public forums to gain the upper hand. To one group, the GAA was primarily a vehicle to promote the Games as a social and cultural benefit to the nation. To others, the GAA represented an expression of Irish nationalism at its most vibrant and energetic, and a distinct statement of Irishness in a colony of the British Empire. But to many others, the GAA was about nothing but playing matches. It was about filling their Sundays with an outing, it was about talking about players and games and beating the crowd next door. And all of that was reflected in the crowds milling around Croke Park that morning. IRA men, fresh from their operations that morning, might have brushed past soldiers, World War I veterans, RIC officers. The poorest residents of the tenements in Dublin mingled with farmers from the countryside, business people and middle-ranking employees. There was women and children there. People came from all across the country. Although the GAA was already grouped by the British authorities with a large cluster of nationalist organisations, Luke O'Toole dealt with a vast and varied constituency within the GAA, and also the reality by 1920 that the GAA's everyday existence was deeply intertwined with those setting the terms of the War of Independence. In this episode, we'll examine how O'Toole and others steered a course for the GAA through the most desperate and dangerous period of their history, but how ultimately their own path was inextricably linked to the whole country's spiral into violence. And we'll take those final fateful steps towards a massacre that will help redefine the GAA and the future of the nation itself in the fifth episode of The Bloodied Field.
barely a mile from Croke Park, a couple of hours after the IRA attacks that Sunday morning. Patrick Berry stood on Cross Guns Bridge in Fibsborough, waiting to meet an IRA contact. Berry was a warder in Maryborough Jail with links to the IRA. That morning, he was to deliver messages from the prisoners, but his contact didn't turn up. Instead, barely a couple of hours after the IRA had performed their operations, Michael Collins appeared on the bridge among the people heading to Croke Park. Berry was shocked. He gave the messages to Collins and together they walked back towards the city centre, away from Croke Park. With the city already locked down and every military and police officer on high alert, they soon ran into a checkpoint. An auxiliary pointed his gun at Collins. Berry rifled through his pockets and produced an old pass for the military barracks on Chip Street, identifying himself as a friendly local. They were let through and they walked a little further until Berry spotted the owner of a local off-license and went inside. When he introduced the off-license owner to Collins, the owner was starstruck. He immediately went behind the counter and scrambled his hand along the top shelf looking for his best bottle of sherry, sending a row of bottles smashing to the floor. Collins and Berry had a drink, settled their nerves and headed on towards the city. Although his life in 1920 was dominated by waging a guerrilla war, Gaelic games always retained a place in Collins's interests. As a young man in London, he had been secretary of the Geraldines GA Club and became friends with Luke O'Toole when O'Toole travelled to London on GA business. O'Toole himself lived in a house on Albert Villas just beside Croke Park. On Sunday nights during the winter, he often played host to a variety of different IRA figures, including Collins. Ono Duffy, the prominent IRA leader in Ulster and friend to Michael Hogan's brother Dan, met Collins for the first time in O'Toole's parlour. Sean Tracy and Dan Breen from Tipperary were also regular visitors, all of them playing hands of 25 together and swapping gossip, teasing O'Toole that they stayed for the cakes baked by his wife Bridget, not the cards. A photographer at Croke Park once captured Collins and fellow IRA leader Harry Boland holding Hurleys and laughing with Luke O'Toole before a game. The night before Bloody Sunday itself, Collins had paid a visit to Phil Shanahan's notorious bar in the Monto and quietly warned anyone who'd listen against going to Croke Park the next day. He knew what was coming elsewhere in the city. Who knew what might follow? This was the dangerous tangle of politics, war and sport that O'Toole tried to guide the GA through. Having moved to Dublin before he turned 25 from his home in Ballycumber near Tinnehealy in County Wicklow, O'Toole had bought two news agents in the Ratmines area. He became full-time secretary of the GAA in 1901, taking over an organisation £800 in debt and transforming that deficit into a £670 profit by 1905. He worked from his own home in Ranala and travelled the country in those first few years, visiting newly founded county boards and clubs, sharing information and creating a new sense of connectedness for an organisation barely 20 years old. He was clever and ambitious for the GAA, still cautious but nimble and politically deft in a way that set a template for GAA politics and administrators that still applies to this day. Once the GAA were financially stable, O'Toole then invested in ways that set the standard the GAA have maintained since. He began organising grants for counties who started schools competitions. 
when the GAA were struggling to complete their competitions inside the calendar year, O'Toole tidied things up and had the GAA on track by 1909. When he got irritated by the lack of media coverage, he set up a GAA newspaper in 1912, the Gaelic Athlete. In time, the GAA had found office space for O'Toole on Sackville Street. Eventually, he moved to Albert Villas with Bridget and their eight children. They all lived his life. Bridget did some admin work when O'Toole was on the road, and when the attendance for the 1913 All-Ireland Football Final between Kerry and Louth exceeded all expectations, Bridget went from door to door, borrowing chairs from the neighbours and made rows along the sideline to accommodate the crowd. He did things that risked alienating sections of the GAA's membership, but that seemed to him essential to the GAA's long-term health. In 1913, the GAA already had use of what would eventually become Croke Park, but when two hurling and football tournaments created to raise funds for a statue in Thurless County Tipperary to the GAA's first patron, Archbishop Thomas Croke far outstripped expectations as a financial success, O'Toole successfully steered a course over seven years through a sceptical membership and a highly irritated Tipperary County Board to divert the extra money to buy the stadium outright and name it Croke Park. Dealing with internal GAA politics was also a decent training ground for keeping the GAA safe when dealing with the outside world. By the 1910s, O'Toole had instigated a typically nuanced policy. The GAA would remain primarily a sporting organisation and engage with the British authorities on matters that impacted the GAA, from taxes on entertainments to lobbying for more special trains to transport people to matches. Although clearly nationalist in outlook, whatever the particular politics of its members, the GAA would publicly stay somewhere in the middle ground. Back in 1913, when the Irish Volunteers were formed that November, O'Toole addressed the crowd at the Rotunda Ice Rink in Dublin. But the GAA refused to publicly support the Volunteers after that. At the same time, GAA members wouldn't be censured for starting or joining local volunteer groups either. When the 1916 Rising unfolded that Easter, many of the key leaders were GAA members. Tom Clark and Sean McDermott from the O'Toole's club had mingled with the crowds in Croke Park, seeking like-minded Republicans. J.J. Walsh, chairman of the Cork County Board, had fought in the GPO during the Rising. Harry Boland hurled for Dublin and chaired the County Board and fought during Easter week. So did Michael Collins. But as an organisation, the GAA again maintained a discreet distance from the fighting and the aftermath. public opinion turned in favour of the previously ridiculed rebels after the execution of the leaders, the GAA went with the flow as well. In 1917, the Irish Volunteers held their first mass meeting since the Rising at Croke Park, where over 900 people gathered for speeches from Eamon de Valera, Michael Collins, Terence McSweeney and others. That year, Harry Boland carried a volunteer flag in front of the band as Wexford and Clare paraded before the All-Ireland Football Final. In 1918, the GAA responded to a new law banning all public gatherings without a permit by organising games across the country at the same time on August 4th. The day became known as Gaelic Sunday. A moment when the GAA stood in open defiance of British rule. Run forward two years and O'Toole 
is playing cards with wanted men. Their future was always destined to somehow determine the GA's future. But before turning his thoughts to the safe and successful running of a highly anticipated match and the massive crowd gathering at Croke Park, O'Toole was already busy on the morning of November 21st, 1920. Members of the GAA Central Council, the organisation's key decision-making body, were gathering for a meeting mainly to debate the ban on GAA players playing soccer and rugby. Long before the IRA men arrived with more detailed information about a possible raid on Croke Park, word of the IRA attacks that morning had already reached O'Toole, who consulted with a number of senior GAA officials. Jim Nolan, President of the GAA, Dan McCarthy and Jack Shoulders, Chairman and Secretary of the Leinster Council, and Andy Harty, a representative of Dublin GAA. The question was simple. What should be done? The entire city expected a reprisal somewhere, but Croke Park? Once again, O'Toole had to consider how the GAA wished to be seen in public. Closing Croke Park and cancelling the Dublin Tipperary game would directly acknowledge that the GAA had been impacted by an act of political violence. That was somewhere O'Toole didn't want to go. But echoes of the morning shootings were everywhere around Croke Park as the day unfolded. Having led an IRA squad to the Gresham Hotel that morning, where Patrick McCormack and Leonard Wilde were shot to death, Paddy Moran made Croke Park in time to stand for a team photograph with Dunleary Commercials, whose replayed Dublin Intermediate Football Final against Aaron's Hope was the first game of the day. Moran was chairman of Dunleary Commercials, and winning that replay was their first ever trophy. Tom Kyo had been in the group that killed Henry Anglis that morning. He even made a date with one of the maids before he left. Joe Dolan and Dan MacDonald were among the group that set fire to the room in Ranelagh Road. All of them were standing on Hill 60. Tom Ryan, originally from Wexford and now married and living in Dublin, had been among a group sent to a house on Marlborough Road near the Stony Batter area of the north inner city, but there was no one at home. Ryan made the short trip back home to Viking Road and went to Croke Park. After the attack on Lieutenants Ames and Bennett at Upper Mount Street, Johnny MacDonald had gone home to collect his football gear. As a huge crowd began to gather for the game, O'Toole and others would have known who might have been mingling among them. The chances of some IRA men involved in the morning shootings turning up at Croke Park was more than likely, even though the whispers of warning were everywhere. There was Collins himself, imploring people in Shanahan's the night before not to go. Vinnie Byrne told the other boys on the job at Upper Mount Street not to follow Johnny MacDonald to Croke Park. Dan Breen, living like an outlaw in Dublin, had left a message for Tommy Ryan, the Tipperary player, at Shanahan's bar that Sunday morning, asking him to come down the country with him. Staying around for the game, he reckoned, wasn't a good idea. But Ryan decided to stay. As the Tipperary team gathered in the reception of Barry's Hotel near Croke Park, in the company of their neighbours and friends and prepared to leave, the crowd outside was huge. The game was due to start at 2.45pm, but the numbers obliged the GAA to delay the start by 30 minutes. Once the GAA press had gotten over their initial bewilderment at Tipperary calling Dublin out in public like a prize fighter goading another opponent, they warmed to the idea of two heavy hitters slugging it out 
at a time when any game was both rare and precious. The correspondent for the Sunday Independent set the scene that morning for a game that everybody now wanted to see. A good scientific game should result. The Dublin team is just now in a good fettle and it should prove a difficult lot to beat on home ground. Tipperary have a good, strong young team and as they were the chief parties to the match, they are certain to leave nothing undone to gain honours. Back at Dublin Castle, news of the morning shootings had created panic. Stories were beginning to circulate by the time F.P. Crozier arrived from Beggar's Bush with news of the killings on Mount Street. As Crozier told his story to an office of Secret Servicemen, the telephone rang. An official answered and went pale. About 50 officers are shot in all parts of the city, he said. Collins has done in most of the Secret Service people. Cars quickly jammed the main gate of the castle. By the end of the day, every room was filled with spies, officers, employees and their families. Many others were given shelter in nearby hotels. One officer had shot himself in his room in the castle, convinced that he had accidentally given away the address of one victim. Another deliberately wounded himself, then claimed he was attacked and subsequently received compensation. Whatever about Sir Neville McCready's disdain for spies and their work, he knew his authority as commander of the military in Ireland needed to be exerted. The city was shut down. Trains and trams were suspended and checkpoints were set up. McCready considered the event in Crow Park. The game would attract Republican sympathisers and possibly some participants that morning. The authorities also reasoned the Dublin Brigade of the IRA wasn't equipped to perform an operation of this scale on their own. Had IRA operatives come to Dublin from Tipperary and elsewhere under the guise of football supporters, might they now be in Croke Park? A search operation would disrupt the game in the way that reminded everyone about the supremacy of the rule of law and it also seemed a useful way of shaking a few trees just to see if any leads might tumble out. A map of Croke Park was produced. A railway line ran along the north end of the ground behind Hill 60, leading to a patch of wasteland. The canal hemmed in the southern end of the sports ground, with the Belvedere sports fields to the east and Jones's Road on the western side. There was four main entrances to Croke Park. One at the canal bridge in the southwest corner, one further up Jones's Road, and another at the corner of Hill 60, allowing access to the terrace. The fourth entrance was at the northeastern corner of the ground. A message was sent to Lieutenant Robert Bray at Collinstown Aerodrome, where the 2nd Battalion of the Duke of Wellington's West Regiment were based. Right, lads, listen up. There was a football match between a Tipperary team and a Dublin team taking place at Crow Park at 1445 hours this afternoon. You will surround the ground and picket all exits. No picket shall be less than one officer and 15 men. About a quarter of an hour before the match is over, a special intelligence officer will warn by megaphone all people present at the match that they would only leave the grounds by the exits. Anybody attempting to get away elsewhere will be shot. Crozier's work done at Dublin Castle, he left for a game of squash and later had lunch at the Shelburne Hotel. When the posts went round, a memo for Crozier requested a company of auxiliaries to assist with the searches at Croke Park. Crozier 
sent the batch set to depart for Meath that day under Major Edward Lawrence Mills. At another time in their lives, Mills had followed Crozier to Lithuania to help reorder their shattered army after World War I. Crozier knew Mills was solid, reliable. He was a good man for this job. As the troops rolled out of Collinstown Aerodrome, a mix of RIC, black and tans and auxiliaries crossed the city, heading for Croke Park. At Croke Park itself, the crowd was almost in. In the dressing rooms, both teams were nearly ready. The Dublin players had rejected all requests to step back for their own safety and go home. In the Tipperary dressing room, the simple anxieties that conquered the mind of every player at some stage before a big match had crept up on Mick Hogan. He worried about Frank Burke, the brilliant Dublin forward Hogan was about to face. Having already asked his teammate Bill Ryan about taking Burke, Hogan tried one last time. Ryan told Hogan again about the night spent walking the floors of Barry's hotel, trying to break in a new pair of boots, having had his usual pair thrown out the window during that fight on the train to Dublin with the British soldiers. Plus, Ryan said, the boots were too loose for his feet. Hogan nodded and returned to his bag, felt around inside and went back with a spare lace for Ryan. Whether sitting in dressing rooms or on military trucks, everyone was ready now for whatever came next. Join us next time on the Bloodied Field podcast as we return to Croke Park to follow the footsteps of the players, the victims and the perpetrators finally leading them to a massacre. Thanks for listening. The Bloodied Field podcast is written and produced by me, Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. We had two special guests on the show today. Andrew Foley voiced the Sunday Independent correspondent teeing up the Tipperary and Dublin game, and Dermot Smith, played the officer reading out the order to go to Croke Park. You can find us and follow this full series of podcasts at gaa.ie forward slash bloody Sunday or on Spotify. You can also contact us on Twitter at bloodiedfieldp1 or email us at bloodiedfieldpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word. This is a story we feel everyone needs to hear.